Open your Bibles to John 4. One of the things I'd like to, it's encouraging to me when I say, let's open our Bibles here and people turn there. That's one thing I've observed when I listen to preaching, there's a, a sound that's indicative of a healthy church. It's like listening to the sound of a child breathing after it's been born. It's like listening to the sound of a healthy heartbeat. It's when the pastor says, open your Bibles to, and you hear pages flipping. Now, I realize that that sound might be in uh, decline in recent days because one day it will be like fingers tapping on a screen or something like that. But for now still, I think most of us carry our Bibles. It's very healthy to follow along. Well, last week we began studying John 4, and we noted that Jesus had been, uh, he started in John 3 a series of conversations with people. He had a conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of the Jews, a prominent and high man in the government of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was in the Sanhedrin, a ruling man. This was not a common person. My uh, wife was asking me some questions when we covered this a few weeks ago, and she said, why did Jesus so quickly turn the subject when he said, we know that you're from God? And I said, well, if, if, if I come up to you and I say, well, we know there's something going on here, that's one thing. But if, if um, Spencer Cox, our governor, comes and says, hey, we know there's something going on here, then that takes on a whole different meaning, doesn't it? There's some broader, more important thing. There's official recognition coming from that. And Nicodemus is in every way the insider. He's a theologian. He's a teacher. He's a ruler. He's connected. He's a man. And now we encounter a conversation with quite the opposite. Nicodemus had all the moral, um, fiscal, uh, political connections. And the woman that Jesus is talking to here at the well has none of them. In fact, if this woman had an anthem for her life, it would be Garth Brooks' song, I Got Friends in Low Places. That's this woman. She's got friends in low places. She's one of the low people. And what's remarkable is we have more words recorded from Jesus to her than to the rich, powerful guy. In fact, in many ways, Jesus is more is kinder, softer, he's more delicate, and more engaging with this woman than he is with Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, he sort of takes charge of the situation, and with this woman, there's, one can even read into it some banter between the two of them. This woman finds Jesus to be intriguing, and she's met some intriguing people in her time. Well, let's Grab our reading in verse 1, and we're going to move forward. Well, I'll, I'll make a few comments for those of you who weren't here with us last week, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We noted last week that Jesus... Uh, didn't necessarily have to pass through Samaria, but there was a road that would go all the way around, and there was a road that would go straight north, and 
That's what the road he chose. Either way, you have to inconvenience yourself. Either you're going to be a very religious, observant Jew and pharisaical, and I say religious in not the kindest way, and go around, but even the most strict of the pharisaical sect would go up through, and they would excuse themselves for it. So Jesus, he goes up through. Now, most of the time when Jews went through Samaria, they didn't stay long, and they certainly didn't talk to Samaritans, and men certainly did not talk to women. I neglected to mention it last week, but there was a famous Jewish rabbi who said that all Samaritan women are to be treated as ceremonially unclean. Any touch of them to them is a violation of the laws of the rabbis. And what is the first thing that Jesus says? He says to her, can I, can you give me something to drink? Now remember what we noted last week. He's not asking her to dip down a community cup or bucket or to even lower a bucket down and pour it into his cup for he has nothing. What he's asking her for is a drink from her water bottle, as it were. Now, I get that, because I don't like drinking after even members of my own family, okay? My wife leaves little residues of lip gloss on the thing, and I just, ugh. If I wanted minty-tasting water, I'd put mint in my water, okay? Schaefer always says, I don't want your schwabber in my water. <laughs> well, we're not talking about bacteria or schwabber or any other such thing. We're talking about something that's ceremonial something that's racial, deeply divisive in the minds of Jews and Samaritans. The mere presence of Samaritans was an offense to Israelites and vice versa. And over the course of a couple hundred years, they had grown up among each other but apart from each other. The Samaritans had taken a portion of the Jewish scripture and said all the rest of it is unscriptural. It's been contaminated. We accept only the first five books of the Old Testament, and they even changed some of the key phrases that were important to them related to the geography of where the Samaritans lived. Now, a few of you were asking me questions about this afterward last week. Did you know that Samaritans are still there today? You can go visit them. They have a very distinct dress. They even have their own Samaritan language, their own Samaritan religion. And in fact, they worship in the same exact spot where Jesus is talking to this woman that we're reading about today. Samaritans are still there. Well, Jesus, in verse 7, we read that a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman... This is an oddity to her. She doesn't understand what's going on. And she's offended in a sense. She doesn't, she's having a hard time breaking through the cultural barriers here. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I've never seen anything like this. And then John gives us a little editorial comment for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... 
And who it is that sang to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now let's stop right there. The rest of the conversation, Jesus is actually going to answer this question. Okay? It is one thing, it's a very interesting thing as I've studied the New Testament and the questions that are asked, when people ask Jesus questions, he always answers them. He doesn't always answer them in the form that people expect, and he doesn't always give them the answer they want. But he always answers it. And so here, in his messianic way, He answers her questions. Now, he's already dropped on her a quotation of her own Samaritan scriptures, an allusion probably more than a quotation. He says, I will have living water. The the Jews were looking for the Christ. They were looking for the Mashiach. The Samaritans were not looking for that person. They were looking for somebody that they called the Tahib who would be a prophet greater than Moses and bring buckets of water with him. And here, Jesus is saying, I got buckets of living water. And if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him, and he would be, she says, well, are are you greater than Jacob? And the only person in her mind that could be greater than Jacob is the Tahib, the Messiah figure that she'd be looking for. Are you greater? Are you this guy? And Jesus goes on. Let's pick up our reading. She says, he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is turning the conversation from physical to spiritual. He says, I want you to get your mind off of physical water, and I want you to start thinking about that which will satisfy the thirst of your soul. And she tries to turn the conversation back to physical things, and in doing so, dismisses the needs of her soul. And she says something that's a little telling. She says, well, I don't want to keep coming back to this well anymore, so give me this living water so I'll never have to come back here. And we need to pause our thoughts right there and realize that this woman is going to the well when she's going there, and she's by herself there for a reason. We haven't found out what that reason is yet, but a a reader of this for the first time would be saying, why is she there at high noon? Why is she there by herself? That's not the time to go get water. Women don't go to the well by themselves. It's a dangerous place otherwise. It's a dangerous activity otherwise. Jesus is talking to her about the thing that's making her go to the well when she's there. She tries to play it off. Jesus said, go call your husband here. Well, now he's He's going to probe a little bit. He's going to address this. 
And the woman answered him, very honestly, sort of, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is doing two things. In a sense, he's commending her for her honesty, but he's doing it in a way that reveals that she's using the truth to obfuscate the truth. She's using a true statement to hide the true truth of her life. The fact of her life is that she has gone from man to man to man, hoping that every man, every different man, will give her happiness, will give her something that she hasn't found. She never finds it, but it's always right around the corner. Now, before we get too hard on this lady, I think we would do well to remember that we do this frequently although it's rare that we would do it with the same thing over and over and over again. We might start with a relationship, and then we go to kids, and then we go to things, and then we go to ease, and then we go to this or to that, and it's a different pursuit, but it's a pursuit all the same. We might even try religion. But that pursuit is the thing that we're using to try to salve our souls. And when we get to the end of the pursuit, very much like Solomon did, we realize that that didn't solve our thirst problem. That didn't solve the us problem. Or sometimes we even pick up and we go from here to there, and we go from here to there, and there to there. And we're always moving around and wondering why the people that we encounter are so bad, never realizing that all we've done is brought our biggest problem with us. We're our biggest problem. And when, sometimes there's a need for a fresh start, I'll grant you that. But many times we're just picking up and going somewhere else and taking our biggest problem with us, unchanged. This is what, it's unusual that this woman has repeated the same mistake over and over and over again, but we shouldn't be too hard on her because we do the same thing just with different objects. I hope that makes sense. Another thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus is not shy in dealing with her sin. Jesus is not shy in dealing with her sin. Now, that is a very hard thing in our culture for us to wrap our minds around because it is ingrained in us that if we address a sin, we're going to lose the relationship and therefore we're going to forfeit all the gospel opportunities that might come in the future. But why do we need a Savior to begin with? God had to send his Son into the world because we've sinned and we've sinned big time against him. It's our sin that's the main issue. And if we don't address sin, we haven't addressed the very need for a Savior. A drowning man has to admit that he's drowning before he'll reach out and take 
the life preserver. And he can say all he wants, he's doing fine. And if you shout words of affirmation, you're doing fine, you haven't much helped that individual, now have you? It would be like this. Imagine, imagine going to a doctor because of a pain, and the doctor looks at the skin and realizes that you've got some, something drastically wrong with you. And the doctor walks into the room and says, you have a clean bill of health, go on your way, live long and prosper. What would we call that? What would we call that? We'd call that medical malpractice. And we would strip that doctor of his license. He would no longer be allowed to practice medicine. We expect that, or take your, take your documents and taxis into a CPA. CPA looks at all the documents, realizes you owe the government, let's make up a number, $172,000. That's a number I think the government would care about. And the CPA says to you, ah, you're fine, go your way, live long and prosper. Well, then you get audited, and you speak to the audit person at the IRS, and you say, well, my CPA said I was fine. Look, I've got all the documentation. Here's the emails. What would happen to that CPA? They'd be stripped of their licensing. They wouldn't be allowed to do it anymore because they didn't say, speak the truth. We deal with sin-sick people. We deal with people who owe God a great deal. They owe God a debt they can't pay. And if we merely affirm them and avoid talking about their very need, we've committed kingdom malpractice. Now, am I saying we lead with sins of people? No, I'm not saying that at all. But we can't be afraid of it either. We can't be afraid to address needs specifically. That can be done very lovingly and kindly. Oftentimes, all it is is an affirmation. Yes, yes, that, I, I too share that, and it's an offense to God, but God forgives. God forgives. You haven't lessened the force of God's word at all, but you've offered the resolution to their sin. Jesus deals frankly with her sin, and Jesus will deal frankly with all of our sins, and he says, you don't You've had five husbands, and now you're living in fornication. You're, you're living with a man unmarried, which according to God's law and according to her law, which she had, was a capital offense. This is not a minor matter in her culture. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> she realizes now that she's talking to somebody who has supernatural power and this living water that he's been talking about, there might be something to it. And now she does something unusual. She does something unusual, which commentators are a bit confused 
over why she does this. Um, please understand, I know, I'm not saying I'm smarter than the commentators. However, having worked with LDS people here in Utah, I think I know what's going on here. Okay, I think I know what's going on here. And a few commentators have sort of hit it, but let me explain. Okay, She says this. He says, what you've said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now, here's what she says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Why is she talking about temples and where to worship? He just talked about her fornication, and she says, Jews say that you have to worship in Jerusalem, and we say you have to worship on Mount Gerizim. So commentators think she's brushing off the charge of fornication and changing the subject entirely. And they criticize her for that. I do not think that's what's happening. I do not think that's what's happening. Because Jesus, Jesus is perfectly capable of saying, don't change the subject, okay? He actually accepts this thought pattern and takes it in his own direction. Now, here's why I say I think I know what's going on. If I had a nickel for every time I've had this conversation in Utah, I haven't had it anywhere else, but I've had it in Utah many times. I have friends who are missionaries in very Catholic areas like uh, Mexico City and so forth, and they'll report something similar. We get to talking about sin and salvation and what Christ offers, and you know what LDS people will say to me almost immediately? Yeah, but what about the Trinity? They immediately go there. What about the Trinity? Or I've had a few. What about the great apostasy? Well, what are they doing? Are they trying to change the subject on me? No, what they're, what they're saying is, I have thought about your position, and there seems to me to be a major theological hurdle stumbling block. There's this thing I can't get and that I can't get over. And for me to accept your position, you're going to have to convince me of this. That's what I think this woman is doing here. She's saying, you're telling me that you're greater than Jacob. You're telling me you've got living water. But all my life, I've been told that Jews think they're right because they worship here. And we think we're right because we worship here, and now you, a Jew, are telling me about living water. What am I to do with all that history? What am I to do with all this theology? What am I to do with all these religious leaders? Do you see, do you guys, do you see this? Am I the only one that's had these conversations? I don't think they're changing the subject. I think what they're doing is they're addressing the biggest hang-up that they have in their soul. And I think that's what this woman is doing. So is it really that important if they worship on Mount Gerizim or if they worship in Jerusalem? Oh, let me tell you. People have gotten hung up on far less. Okay. And Jesus says, lady, listen, woman, <laughs> ma'am, is probably a better translation, ma'am, believe me, Believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship. Do you see how Jesus is actually addressing her issue? You worship what you do not know. And he's telling her, you, you're worshiping on Mount Gerizim because you've changed the Pentateuch. We worship on Jerusalem, he says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And what he's doing is he's referencing later scripture that she doesn't recognize as authoritative. Passages like the book of Isaiah or many of the Psalms that David wrote. You're worshiping what you don't know because you've changed things around. We worship what we do, what we have, because we're following revelation from God. But neither of them are exactly on point. For, he goes on, but the hour is coming. And now listen to the presentness of this. We have it in we have it in four English words, and three of them connote immediacy. And is now here. It is right now. It's now. And it's here. I'm standing in front of you. Believe me, I'm standing right in front of you. It's here. It's talking to you when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying it's not going to matter anymore because the te- she didn't know this, but the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And the temple at Mount Gerizim had already been destroyed. It's not going to matter anymore where you worship. What matters is the veracity, the truthfulness of your worship. Does your worship conform to me, the way, the truth, and the life? The truth, the word that was brought into this world, the light that was made flesh. Are you going to worship me? Are you going to worship the truth? And are you going to worship me not by taking your body and your things and coming to this location or to that, but by worshiping me from your heart with a soul that's been born again such that you become a temple and take me wherever you go with you? He's telling her, I don't want you to think anymore about the accoutrements of religion, places, dress, opinions. I want you to bore into the truth of God's word. I want you to look at me, the truth, and I want you to believe me. Believe me. Now again, let's pause right here. Who is he talking to? This is the commonest of the common people. This is a person who's bound up in personal sin 
and feels the guilt and shame of it as evidenced by the fact that she's there at high noon. And notice something that Jesus does. He doesn't get insecure or overeager and try to close the net immediately. He doesn't attempt to put her to a decision. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I'm he. That's me. You're talking to him. He's here. He's right here. And then he lets her walk away. She's rattled. This, this is a staggering claim. She can't deny the scripturalness of his words, nor can she deny that this man looked into her soul and saw who she really was. This man looked into her soul and repeated back to her the things she felt most guilty about. And he still wanted to talk to her and have her worship him. He didn't go anywhere. She ran from him. She went back to the town. She told some people, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Now, did he really tell her everything she ever did? No, but she'd made a conclusion that was not wrong. If he could tell me this thing I did, then I know he can tell me everything else, too. She was right. And they're like, it's remarkable. It's remarkable, really, that this happened because... The people obeyed her. This is the sort of social outcast that people aren't accustomed to listening to all that much. But she goes and she must have been quite persuasive. Um, you know, I, I, I can't wait actually to meet this woman in heaven because I want to see what she's like. And my guess is, um, I've met a few ladies like this, um, to make it in this world... Uh, they got to be pretty tough and persuasive, and uh, they can impose their will on you. Um, and I'm guessing that's who this woman was. And she goes into town, and she gathers everybody up and brings them out to meet Jesus. He told me everything I ever did. And they sit, and they listen to him, and they conclude that he is the one. He is the one. And they tell her, look, we at first we believed you when he, you said that he told you everything you read of, but now, after listening to him, we believe you all the more. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his words. It's amazing. It really is amazing. You know, If you, if, if you didn't know the end of this story, if you didn't, like, do you guys ever do this? Like, um, sometimes this happens with uh, games that I record. It's tied, and 
regulation has like 20 seconds left in it, but the recording still has like an hour on it, and I realize, oh, this game goes into overtime. And the field goal kicker is lining up for a kick, and I know he's going to miss it because I still got an hour left on that recording. So I just go zip, 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 and my kids go, how did you know, Dad? And I'm like, well, if you didn't know the end of this story, if you, if you didn't know there was an hour left on the recording, okay, when Jesus talks to this woman and says, I am he, and she runs away, how many of you at that moment go, oh, man, Jesus blew it? <laughs> it actually... He, it was saving this sinful woman that led to the salvation of many in the village. We ought not be afraid to talk to the social outcasts. In fact, we ought to be encouraged to do so, and they ought to be our first priorities. But furthermore, we ought never be afraid to talk to people about their sins. Even if when we do, they run from us. Because again, that is the one thing that they have to get resolved if they're going to come into the kingdom. And if God deals with their sins, forgives them, offers them amnesty and sonship, they will not gripe at you for dealing with their sins. They will thank you and wrap their arms around you and call you brother or sister. So be brave. You have to deal with it. God will. You can be so gracious and kind. Let's pray. Father, give us boldness and courage. Help us to meditate long on how Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman. And I pray that we would find much uh, food for our soul here in John 4. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.